Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In our last session, there were several little episodes in which Jesus had to deal with various forms of unbelief. He had to perform a couple of healings that really went against the grain of how he usually heals people because these individuals either didn't have any faith or they really didn't want to be healed to begin with. In both healings, Jesus had to physically touch them to heal them. He's never had to do that before. In the past, he just spoke a word and they were healed. And in some cases, he didn't even have to be anywhere near them. With just a word, he healed individuals in neighboring towns. But in these two particular cases from our last session, he had to physically touch them. One of them he had to touch twice. Well, that's not the only form of disbelief that Jesus had to contend with. During an episode of mass healings, after three days of it, Jesus decided he wanted to feed the crowd like he had done before with the five loaves and two fish. But once again, his disciples said, but where are we going to get enough food to feed this crowd? Jesus didn't rebuke them for their lack of faith, at least not yet. He looked over it and just said, how many loaves of bread and fish do we have? Turns out they had seven loaves and a few small fish. So Jesus did exactly what he did the last time. Took the loaves and the fish and turned them into enough food to feed the entire 4,000 plus. And he didn't gloat, didn't say, see there, where's your faith? He didn't say anything like that. Not yet. He did later on. He made his way across the Sea of Galilee, and the moment he went ashore, he was immediately greeted by Pharisees and Sadducees who made accusations against him and demanded a sign from heaven, in which they were implying with that, folks, that all the works and miracles that they had heard about and seen before were not signs from heaven. You kind of miss it, but basically they were accusing him of working for Satan. And that's not new. They had already accused him of that before, and they weren't so subtle about it either. They actually came right out and said it. So Jesus turned his back on them and got back into the boat. And on the way back to the other side, Jesus continued to stew over this. But meanwhile, his disciples were already worrying about running out of bread again. They were talking amongst themselves about how they had run out of bread. But Jesus was still thinking about what had happened with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he told them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But in response to that statement, the disciples asked each other, is it because we have no bread? And with that, Jesus had finally had enough of all the faithlessness. First, the two who required extra effort to be healed because of their lack of faith. Then the faithlessness of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But now, from his disciples, Jesus went off on them and said, Come on, guys, are you kidding me? Have you forgotten about the 5,000 that were fed with just five loaves and two fish? How many baskets of leftovers did we pick up? They said 12. And he said, What about the 4,000 that were fed with just seven loaves and a few small fish? How many baskets of leftovers did we pick up then? They said seven. Then how is it that you could possibly think that I'm talking about bread? I said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're corrupted, puffed up pride and contamination. Don't you understand? Of course, yeah, then they figured it out. But then after all this faithlessness, Jesus was finally confronted with some real faith. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, some say John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say Jeremiah or some other Old Testament prophet who's been raised from the dead. Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter stepped up and said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. Your name means the peace of a rock. But on this whole and complete massive rock, I will build my assembly and death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you lock on earth must be what's already locked in heaven. And likewise, whatever you unlock on earth must be what is already unlocked in heaven. 
with the keys of the kingdom of heaven, if it's unlocked in heaven, you can unlock it here. If it's locked in heaven, you can lock it here. That's where we left off last time, folks, and that's some pretty bold stuff. We're going to build on these keys in today's session. Matthew sixteen twenty one, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and Luke chapter 9, verse 22. I'll report that from that time forth, Jesus began to openly and clearly teach his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and suffer many things at their hands and be put to death. And after three days, rise again. Now, folks, what it means when it says that Jesus began to openly teach this, it means just that. This is the first time Jesus came right out and said it bluntly. I'm going to get killed, but then rise again three days later. Up until now, it's been addressed, but not as bluntly. It was first addressed by John the Baptist. He told people that Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't mean much to us as 21st century Christians because we don't study the Old Testament. But in the Old Law, God had set up a symbolic model that every Jew had been practicing for thousands of years. And in that practice was the ritual slaying of a lamb to take away your sin. Every Jew knew what a sacrificial lamb was. But John called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the idea that Jesus would die wasn't a new concept. In John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that just as Moses lifted up a bronze serpent on a pole as a symbol of sin being judged, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And just recently, Jesus told a crowd with Pharisees mixed in it that he himself was the bread of life and that anyone who eats of that bread will live forever. And just in case they didn't get it, he told them, the bread that I shall offer is my flesh. So Jesus has been teaching this from the very beginning, folks, but now he's no longer speaking in symbolic terms. He's blatantly coming right out and saying, hey, I've got to go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the religious leaders, suffer at their hands, be put to death, and then after three days rise again. Now, folks, in that statement, you'd think everybody would be focusing on the rising again after three days part. But apparently the news of Jesus' forthcoming death shook them up so much that they didn't hear that. Matthew 16, verse 22, and Mark chapter 8, verse 32 report that Peter took him by the hand and led him aside and then facing him began to rebuke him. Peter said, God forbid, Lord, this must never happen to you. Now, folks, knowing what Jesus knows and him knowing Peter the way he does, what do you suppose Jesus' response would be to this? Without peeking ahead, what do you suppose it would be? Peter, I know you don't fully understand, but this is something that I have to do. But don't worry, because I'll rise again three days later. Now, folks, doesn't that sound like a rational response that Jesus would have made? It tells the truth, it's doctrinally accurate, and it's comforting. But no, that's not what happened. Look at it. Jesus turned away from Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, folks, where in the world did that come from? The Amplified Version brings out some of the original meaning of the Greek. When Jesus said, get behind me, he said it in a way that implies, you're in my way. Get behind me, Satan. You are in my way. You're an offense to me. So what's this all about, folks? This is Peter, remember? This is Peter that Jesus is talking to, not some Pharisee. So where does Jesus get off calling him Satan? What's Satan got to do with all of this? You know, Peter may have been on the wrong track of thinking. That's not new. He's done that several times before. But to call him Satan and to react this way, what's going on? 
Most scholars say that Jesus reacted this way because Peter was wanting Jesus to bring in the kingdom immediately. If Jesus is going to die, then this changes Peter's whole outlook on what's going on. Jesus told him, you are setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. So Peter was investing in what he thought was going to be a political takeover, and he was on the inside of things, you know. But what most people miss when they study this incident is that Jesus is not calling Peter Satan. They assume he is because Peter's the only one there, and it's in response to what Peter said that Jesus goes into this rebuke. But Peter is not the only one there. A lot of folks miss this. This isn't the first time that Jesus has used the phrase, get behind me, Satan. The first time that we know of was recorded by Matthew and Luke back before Jesus even started his ministry. He went out into the desert to pray and Satan followed him around everywhere, tempting him. And the specific temptation that Satan offered to Jesus that caused him to say, get behind me, Satan, was recorded in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 11 and Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. They report that Satan showed Jesus all of the kingdoms of the earth in the twinkling of an eye. And then he said to him, to you, I will give all this power, all this authority and all of their glory for it's been turned over to me and I give it to whoever I will. Now, folks, Satan wasn't lying when he said that because second Corinthians chapter four, verse four tells us that presently, not permanently, but presently Satan is the God of this world. He's been the God of this world since Adam sinned the first sin, and he'll continue to be the God of this world until Jesus takes it back with force. Well, Satan knows that Jesus plans to take it back by force, and he also probably knows that Jesus will win. We know that Jesus will win, but you never can tell with Satan. His arrogance is so huge, you just never know. But anyway, at the time Satan told Jesus he had the power and authority to give it to whomever he wills, he wasn't lying. And Jesus knew he wasn't lying, but Satan told Jesus in the desert, to you I will give all this power and authority and their glory. Really? I was going to take it back anyway, but you're going to give it to me now? What's the catch? Here's the catch. Satan told him, if you will prostrate yourself before me and worship me. Now, folks, there is no better example of humility than Jesus Christ. He was one with God before the creation of space-time, and he lowered himself into the form of a human to pay for sins that he never committed. So for our benefit, he's gone pretty low. But Satan is saying, are you willing to go even lower? In human suffering right now, I'll give it all back to you. Just bow down and worship me. Now, folks, other than bowing down to the lowest putrid form of life in existence, what's the real catch in that offer? Skip the cross, skip this whole business of being the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, worship me, and I'll hand the reins over to you now. Well, there is your catch, folks. Why would Jesus want to rule over an entire race of the damned? Jesus responded, Get behind me, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. So Satan failed, but he doesn't quit. So now he's offering that same temptation, only now he's in stealth mode. He knows Jesus won't listen to him, but he might listen to Peter. So Satan uses Peter's confusion and fear to manipulate an offer that's ultimately the same temptation. Skip the cross and bring in the kingdom now. And to make it even sound more convincing, Peter says, God forbid, Lord, God forbid that this should happen to you. You know, the father doesn't really want this. And of course, that would start a train of thought that would never end. You and the father carefully planned this out before the foundation of the world. But that was before you really knew what it was like to be a living, breathing human being inside linear time wearing human flesh. 
Things are much different now, aren't they? It's not too late to change your mind, you know. You are the son of God. But Jesus was too smart for Satan's cunning. He didn't let his thoughts go that far. He knew the train of thought that Peter started would eventually go there. And since he knew where that message was really coming from, he looked past Peter and directed his rebuke to the source. Get behind me, Satan. You are in my way. You're an offense and a snare to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, folks, I want to spend some special time on this whole concept. Satan speaking to us through the words of others, speaking to us through thoughts and how to deal with them, and especially using the phrase, get behind me, Satan, and what that's all about. The charismatics like to say, get thee behind me, Satan, because it sounds cool, I guess. My way of thinking, though, if you cut out the word thee, you get rid of him faster. The phrase get lost works, too. Same thing. Be gone is another one. But when we use those phrases, when we make those commands, folks, this ties into what Jesus spoke of earlier when he said he'd give us the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever's locked in heaven, you can lock down here. And that includes Satan's interferences and harassments. Satan does not want us to know anything about those keys, folks. So what he's done for the past 2,000 years is kept most of us in the dark concerning that we even have those keys. But Satan knows he can't keep that secret from everybody forever. So as a contingency... He's also kept most of us in the dark about the fact that there are even doors that can be locked and unlocked. So like any good stealth organization would do, he's compartmentalized the truth. To those who know about the doors, he scrambles the intel concerning the keys. To those who know about the keys, he scrambles the intel concerning the doors. You can't defend yourself from anything if you don't know what you're defending yourself against. And part of Satan's deception is keeping you in the dark concerning how he engages in warfare. But thanks to the scriptures, some of us have discovered what's called the armor of God. And it's laid out in Ephesians chapter 6. But Satan knows about Ephesians chapter 6. He hopes people won't find it. But to those who have, he has a contingency for them. That every attack he sends is camouflaged. So that they will never suspect the attack waged against them is even an attack. By convincing them that when they're attacked, it's not really him. Satan's cloaking device. If you can't see the enemy vessel firing at your hull, then when the torpedoes hit, you'll think it's turbulence, or maybe something wrong with the engines. You'll be looking everywhere for a solution and trying all kinds of things to make it stop. But ultimately, you will fail until you know what it really is that's causing the damage. And you won't know that until you know how to see the enemy vessel, even when it's cloaked, like Jesus did. Peter said what he said. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are in my way. Satan's cloaking device didn't work on Jesus. He saw right through it. Now, the opposite can be just as damaging. If you know that there's a cloaked enemy vessel out there somewhere, but don't know how to see past the cloaking device, then you'll suspect every single bump and rattle to be an attack, when it might just be turbulence or something wrong with the engines. And that's happened to me before. That's why the belt of truth is necessary. That's why praying for wisdom is necessary. You've got to know how to see past the cloaking device so that you'll know when it's the enemy, and you've also got to know how to defend yourself from his attacks when it is. You can't have one or the other, you've got to have both. So let's look at some scripture to help us understand what's really going on here. What the doors are, where they are, and how to lock them or unlock them, and most importantly, how to see past Satan's camouflage so that we'll know when the attacks are from him. Now, as you go through the New Testament, if you start in Matthew and just read all the way up to Revelation, the first glimpse that you get of there even being supernatural armor is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. 
says that we endure all things by speaking the word of truth in the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand to attack and for the left hand to defend. Now, folks, what Paul's talking about is something he's already written about in the book of Ephesians. In our Bible, 2 Corinthians comes before Ephesians, but Paul wrote Ephesians first, and it had been passed around, so this particular verse is in reference to the armor of God, weapons of righteousness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, it says, For though we walk and live in the flesh, we're not carrying on our warfare according to the flesh, and we're not using mere human weapons, for the weapons of our warfare are not physical, but they are mighty before God for the overthrow and destruction of strongholds. So this is twice in Paul's letters to the Corinthians that he refers to what he laid out in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, Paul says, In conclusion, be strong in the Lord. Be empowered through your union with him. Draw all of your strength from him, that strength which his boundless might provides. Put on God's whole armor, that you may be able successfully to stand up against all of the strategies and the deceptions of the devil. Now, folks, that's key. Paul makes it very clear that being able to successfully stand up against the strategies and the deceptions of the devil is something that cannot be done without the armor, without God's complete armor. And in verse 12, he says, why? It's because we are not wrestling with flesh and blood. We're not contending only with physical opponents, but against the despotisms, against the powers, and against the master spirits who are the world rulers of this present darkness, against spirit forces of wickedness in the supernatural sphere. So when Satan attacks, the camouflage is going to be all about making you think that it is flesh and blood, that there are physical, natural reasons for the attack that you're enduring, and therefore there must be physical, natural solutions. Now, if it is a natural problem, then there will be natural solutions. But we're not talking about those. We're talking about when it's satanic attack that's camouflaged as flesh and blood natural problems. Paul's saying that because we're not wrestling only with flesh and blood and not only contending with physical opponents, but against the powers and spirit forces of wickedness in the supernatural sphere, put on God's whole armor that you may be able. That gives me goosebumps when I read that, that you may be able to resist and stand your ground on the evil day of danger and having done all the crisis demands to stand firmly in your place. Now, immediately following that verse, Paul lays out the tactics. He gives each piece of armor the location that it's supposed to be put and what specifically it is that it's defending you from. So with these tactics, not only do we get a defense, but we get a strategic layout of all of Satan's forms of deception. He says in verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The Amplified Version says, Having tightened the belt of truth around your loins. That's Paul's graphic way of letting you know that the first thing Satan does is he hits below the belt. He comes after the groin with deception Now, there's something I should warn you about all of these pieces of armor. The equipment that's listed here is not something that you get on your knees and ask God to put on you. You don't get on your knees and say, Lord, put on me the belt of truth. You don't do that. Paul says you put on God's whole armor. It's God's armor, but you have to put it on and you have to keep it on. All the pieces are like that. And I'll give you an example by starting off right here with the belt of truth. 
How do you put on and tighten and fasten the belt of truth around your loins? Jesus told you in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So wearing the belt of truth requires abiding in God's word. In combination with that, James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom, folks. Folks, there are a lot of things that we want to ask God for. But this is one thing that we have a guarantee that whenever we ask for it, we have the promise that God will generously give it to us without reproach. So ask for wisdom, abiding God's word, that's putting on the belt of truth. The next piece of armor listed in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. When the Bible uses the word righteousness, folks, what it means is right standing with God. In other words, where do you stand at present with God? What's that got to do with anything? Well, Satan will attack your heart with guilt. And if you feel guilt, whether you're really guilty or not is irrelevant. The fact is, if you feel guilty... If there's something going on that we're keeping to ourselves, it builds a wedge between us and God so that the lines of communication are broken. 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 tells us that if we are really living and walking in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have true unbroken fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ removes us from all sin and guilt. Check out Hebrews chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. It says, Not a creature exists that is concealed or hidden from his sight. But all things are open and exposed, naked and defenseless to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Since we have a great high priest, and that's a title of Jesus Christ, we'll get into that some other time. Since we have a great high priest who has already ascended and passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession of faith in him. And here's why, folks. Verse 15. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to understand and sympathize and have a shared feeling with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sinning. Then let's fearlessly and confidently and boldly draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy for our failures and find grace to help in good time for every need. Don't feel guilty, folks. Let him have it. He knows it all anyway. There's no point in keeping it hidden from him. Keep the lines of communication open. Now, there is one more thing that can prevent you from putting on the breastplate of righteousness if there is a particular sin that you refuse to let go of. Whether it's adultery or, you know, whatever. Sure, Jesus' blood covers it, but you cannot have unbroken communication with God while you're holding on to a sin. You just can't do it. Slip-ups and mistakes? Sure, that's different. God knows we're not perfect. But if there's something that we're holding on to and refuse to let go, that's a different matter. And you can't put on the breastplate of righteousness if you're in a situation like that. Satan does not want us in contact with the commanding general, so he will always launch an attack of guilt. Now, if Satan were to be the one to come right up to you and accuse you, you wouldn't even worry about it because you would say, you're Satan. Who are you to talk? I mean, you're the chief bad guy. Who cares what you think? And Satan knows that's the way we would feel. So what he does is he'll whisper the thoughts in your ears while you're praying so that you'll think it's you. You'll get on your knees to pray and Satan will bring up something that is totally irrelevant and make you feel guilty. Or he might use other people, just like he used Peter. Other Christians might say things or behave a certain way that makes you feel guilty. Those are all the forms of camouflage. 
That's why you have to keep the lines of communication open between you and God, because if you know that you are right by him, then nothing that anybody else comes up with matters. Back to Ephesians chapter 6, after bringing up the breastplate of righteousness, Paul says, Shod your shoes with the readiness that is given by the gospel of peace. Peace is what you put on your shoes. Why? Why there? Because your shoes cover your feet, and your feet decide what direction you're going to take. So what you're defending your feet from, folks, if peace is the defense, then what is the attack? Anxieties? Fears? What-ifs? Anything to get you moving in a direction that you shouldn't be moving into, or anything to get you to stand still out of fear when God wants you to move forward, or to get you to move forward when God wants you to stand still. Fears, anxieties, what-ifs. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, folks, that's a very famous verse, but the part that we always remember is the part where it says, Who can be against us? The part we should really focus on is where it says, If God is for us. No matter what it is you're afraid of, no matter what impending doom is coming, is God for you? Romans 8.31 says he is. Romans chapter 8 verses 31 to 39 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. Will he not also with him graciously give us all other things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies us. So who is there to condemn us? Well, Christ Jesus, the one who died for us? More than that, who was raised from the dead and who is right now sitting at the right hand of God who intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for his sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Who's regarding us as sheep to be slaughtered, folks? Satan is. Why? because of him. It's because of who we are in Christ. But Paul tells us in verse 37 says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's your peace. God is for us. And therefore, nobody of any merit can be against us, not even Satan. First John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Little children, you are of God. You belong to him. And you have already defeated and overcome the agents of the Antichrist because he who lives in you is greater and mightier than he who is in the world. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Do not fret or have any anxiety about anything, but in every circumstance and in everything put together, by prayer and petition, definite requests with thanksgiving, continue to make all of your wants known to God. And God's peace, which transcends all understanding, shall garrison and mount guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, folks, there's a catch to this. You can't ask God for peace and get it. I've tried. It doesn't work. There is something we have to do in order to get that peace. There's two things, and it's in verse 6. By prayer and petition, continue to make your wants known to God with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving alone will not give you peace. 
Continuing to make your wants and needs known to God will not give you peace. You have to do both. Whenever I leave out one or the other, I lose my peace. And verse 8 says, For the rest, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of reverence and honorable and seemly, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and lovable, whatever is kind and winsome and gracious, if there is any virtue or excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things, focus on them, weigh and take account of these things, fix your minds on them. Folks, for years, I used to think this was Paul's way of just saying, look for the silver lining in the cloud. Try to look at a glass half full instead of a glass half empty. No, that's not what this is. This is a vital piece of information that is necessary for keeping your peace. And the reason why is because Satan is wanting us to fix our minds on what he's sending to us. The fears, the anxieties, the depression... The what ifs. And Satan's got minions to send all of those our way 24 hours a day. So to put on the shoes of peace, you have to fix your minds on what you know. Not on something that's made up. You're not psyching yourself out. But focus on what you know is worthy of reverence and honor. Whatever is just and whatever is pure. Whatever is kind and winsome and gracious. If there's any virtue or excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, focus on those things. And all of us have something, folks. God is for us, therefore nobody can be against us, nobody of merit. God's not going to judge us. He took care of that at the cross. He is for us, and he lives inside us. And he who lives inside of us is greater and mightier than he who is in the world, be it flesh and blood or supernatural entities. Even the agents of the Antichrist have already been defeated. We're more than conquerors. So no matter what hell they're putting in front of us, Focus on what you know to be true. Fix your minds on them. Now, folks, fixing your minds on what you know to be true, on what you know to be good, this also helps us with the remaining pieces of armor. The next piece of armor listed in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith, folks. And the shield covers the entire body. Satan sends doubts, anxieties, and fears to our feet. Now, if we're wearing the shoes shod with peace, we're defended. From the protection against deception, if we've covered our loins with the belt of truth, we're protected. If we've covered our heart with the defense against Satan's attacks of guilt with the breastplate of righteousness, we're protected. But in addition to those defenses, we can put up on top of everything else the shield of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance the confirmation, the title deed of the things that we hope for being the proof of things that we do not see. Faith is the conviction of their reality, despite what's revealed to the senses. So no matter what you saw, no matter what you heard, no matter what you think you feel, the shield of faith means relying on the conviction of the reality of the situation, regardless of the senses. Which brings us back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. How do we endure all of the things that invade our senses? By speaking the word of truth in the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand to attack and for the left hand to defend. Now with the left hand, we're defending with our shield, folks. But Paul said for the right hand to attack, what do we use as an offense? Everything else that we've talked about so far has been defensive. What's the offense? Stay tuned.
The next piece of armor listed after the shield of faith, it says, take the helmet of salvation. What does the helmet do, folks? The helmet goes over your head and it calls it the helmet of salvation. Now, to anybody who studies what salvation is all about, there are two stages to salvation. There's justification and there's sanctification. Justification was taken care of at the cross. It's over with. It's a done deal. We have all been justified and declared not guilty, period. And that's the helmet of salvation. But after we've been justified, then God desires us to begin a journey called sanctification in which we grow. Paul gave us a challenge in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He said, don't be conformed to this world and fashioned after its external superficial customs, but instead be transformed by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideals and its new attitude, so that you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. Mind renewal. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand them, because the things of the Spirit of God are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual man judges all things, and yet is himself to be judged by no one. Wow. That's the ESV translation. The Amplified says the spiritual man tries all things. He examines, investigates, inquires into, questions, and discerns all things. It is himself to be put on trial and judged by no one. He can read the meaning of everything, but no one can properly discern or appraise or even get an insight into him. And then verse 16 tells us that we have the mind of Christ and we do hold the thoughts, the feelings, and the purposes of his heart. But while we do have the mind of Christ, Satan still launches those attacks. So basically, what is the helmet of salvation protecting us from, folks? How do we put on the helmet of salvation and keep it on? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We take every thought captive. I like the way the Amplified puts it better. It says, Inasmuch as we refute arguments and theories and reasonings and every proud and lofty thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God, we lead every thought and purpose away captive into the obedience of Christ. We have to, because you don't know where those thoughts are coming from. And that's exactly what Jesus did when Peter said to him, God forbid, Lord, this should never happen to you. Jesus took that thought and he held it captive. He didn't sit it down, ponder over it, focus on it, and let it grow. He wiped it out because it went against the grain of everything he knew was right. He came down here to die for the sins of humanity. He planned it before the foundation of the world. That's why he was here. Nothing was going to get in the way of accomplishing that goal. Take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Christ. Now we're going to come back to this here in a minute, taking every thought captive, because sometimes we receive a train of thought. How do you take a train of thought captive? That's a little different. We'll get into that in a minute. So in Ephesians chapter 6, we've got the belt of truth protecting our loins from Satan's deception, the breastplate of righteousness protecting our heart from Satan's attacks of guilt. We have the shoes shod with peace protecting our feet and our movements and our decision making from Satan's attack of anxiety, fears, doubts, what ifs. 
and we have the shield of faith that covers our entire body from any attack. We have the helmet of salvation in which our software is protected and shielded from thoughts that are not of God, thoughts that go against the grain of what's real, the grain of what Jesus said. And then finally it says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, the Word of God is alive and full of power and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing line between the soul and the spirit, and of joints and of marrow. It penetrates to the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and sifting and analyzing, and judging the very thoughts and purposes of our heart. That's a pretty sharp sword, folks. The Word of God is sharp, and Psalm 138 verse 2 says that God holds His Word even higher than His own name. I mean, you would think the name of God would be the highest thing there is. Nope, there's one thing higher, God's Word. So the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is sharp, it's elevated. And then Psalm 12, verse 6 tells us it's completely dependable. It says, The words and promises of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times over. And it's stable. Psalm 18, verses 29 to 30 says, For by you I can run through a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tested and tried. And the sword's also permanent. It's not going anywhere. First Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and 25 says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory and honor is like the flower of grass. But grass withers, and flowers drop off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. So this is a weapon that we want to have, folks. How do we sharpen it? The same way we put on our belt of truth. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Okay, fine. So knowing the truth puts on a belt of truth around our loins. But what's that got to do with the sword? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7 told us that we endure everything, no matter what it is, supernatural, physical, whatever. We endure all things by speaking the word of truth. In the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand to attack and for the left hand to defend. By speaking the word of truth. That's exactly what Jesus did when he was being tempted by Satan in the desert. With every attack that Satan gave him, Jesus threw a Bible verse at him. So here's how you use it. An attack of deception targets your loins. Let's say for the sake of argument, Satan has convinced you through circumstances and your own inner thinking that somehow, for some reason, God has abandoned you. The belt of truth can withstand that attack, but you can knock it out before it gets there with the swing of the sword. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake you. Assuredly not. Let's say you get an attack of fear, or doubt, or anxiety is targeting your feet. This is going to happen if I don't do this, or that's going to happen if I don't do that. This is going to happen, that's going to happen. What if that happens? What if that happens? What about this need? What about that need? Well, the shoes shod with peace can withstand that attack. But you can knock it out before it gets there with a swing of the sword. Philippians 4.19 says, My God will liberally supply and fill to the full your every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And folks, I mean to say these things out loud. I'm not talking about just believing in them. Knowing these verses and believing in these verses is what puts on the shoes, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and all of that. But swinging the sword means saying it out loud. Because there is someone there to hear it. 
When you're attacked, there is someone there to hear you say those verses in response to those attacks. You're on your knees trying to pray, and suddenly you get this attack of guilt that targets your heart. What makes you think God gives a rat's tail about you, especially when you consider what you are? The breastplate of righteousness can withstand that attack, but you can knock it out before it gets there. With First John told me that if I confessed my sins, he would be faithful and just to forgive me of all my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And we've already talked about that. I'm doing the best I can. God and I have a perfect line of communication going here. And besides that, Hebrews 4 told me that he understands and sympathizes with my feelings of weakness. So get lost. Get behind me, Satan. This is another good reason, folks, for abiding and living in God's Word. The more you know it, the sharper your sword. The more scripture you have to throw out there to go against those attacks. Knowing them and believing them is one thing, but there is something about saying those verses out loud in response to the deception. You can almost hear the sound of the demon splitting in half after you say it. But there is one last piece of armor that most people don't recognize as a piece of armor. We've got the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness... Shoes shod with peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How many pieces of that, folks? Did you count them? That's six, which means this armor is incomplete. There's one more piece missing. No, it's not. It's right here. Verse 18. Prayer. Pray at all times, on every occasion and in every season, with all manner of prayer and entreaty, and pray in the Spirit. And that's got nothing to do with speaking in tongues, folks. That means keep it real. No speeches, no rambling. Keep it real. Because the war is real. The hurt is real. And verse 18 says, Pray at all times, on every occasion, in every season, in the Spirit, with all manner of prayer and entreaty. And to that end, keep alert. And watch with strong purpose and perseverance, interceding in behalf of all the saints. Now let me go back to this whole business of taking every thought captive. That's the helmet of salvation. You could also say it's the shield of faith. The point is you take every thought captive. That's what Jesus did. But sometimes, folks, sometimes it'll be a train of thought in which Satan himself is the conductor and each car on the track is an individual thought, but they're all connected. You can't take them captive because they're all connected. And what Satan does when that happens is he's keeping you paralyzed. So it's like you're just sitting there in your car next to a track and the train just keeps going by. Thought after thought after thought. That's all connected. You're willing to take an individual thought captive, but by the time you've even got it in your hands, there's six or seven more thoughts down the pike. You can't take them captive. And see, that's what we try to do. By taking each thought captive, we take the thought, we examine it, and we say, Okay, God, what's the truth? What's really going on here? What does your word say about this? What did you say? What did you promise? And that works, folks. Don't get me wrong. That works. It's powerful. And that's precisely what the scriptures told us to do. We're to lead every thought captive into the obedience of Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the helmet of salvation. That's the shield of faith. But occasionally, Satan will send a plethora of thoughts so that you don't have time to take each individual thought captive because there aren't any individual thoughts. It's a long train of thought that's 10 miles long. So what do you do when that happens? You do what Jesus did when he was talking to Peter. You turn your back on the train of thought and say, Get behind me, Satan, for you are in my way. You're an offense and you're a snare and a hindrance to me. 
Every single time Jesus had to deal with Satan, it was always through Scripture, except this time. He just turned his back and said, Get behind me, Satan. And always remember that the train of thought most likely will be camouflaged. You'll think you're the conductor when it's not. See, that's what prevents us from turning our back on Satan most of the time, folks, is we don't see that it's him. We think it's us. If Jesus hadn't known that Satan was the source of the message that he was receiving through Peter, then Jesus and Peter may have had a long discussion. Jesus didn't go there. It wasn't Peter. Peter's got some problems. Of course he does. He's not seeing this accurately. But Jesus went past that and went straight to the source. All of us, folks, all of us have fears and doubts, worries and anxieties. And when we read about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, we make effort to put on every piece of armor and keep it on. Abide in God's word, pray for wisdom, keep the lines of communication open, take every thought captive. Well, what happens, folks, is that we don't even think to take a thought captive because we assume it's not from the enemy. It's been camouflaged. We think it's our thought. We think it's a friend's idea. Now, folks, the world is full of natural problems with natural solutions. But don't forget the God of this world is Satan. So while all of our problems may be promoted as natural problems by the world, not all of them are. Some of them are supernatural. And when you try to solve a supernatural problem with a natural solution, you're going to fail. It's just like the cloaked ship shooting those torpedoes. And if you don't know that there's a cloaked ship out there, you're going to waste your time trying to figure out what the waters are like, what's wrong with your engines. And while you're scrambling around doing all of those things, the captain of the enemy vessel just keeps hitting the fire button. Take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Christ. If you can't, then you turn your back on those thoughts and say, get behind me, Satan, for you are in my way. These are the keys of the kingdom, folks. By putting on the belt of truth, wearing the breastplate of righteousness, and shotting your shoes with the gospel of peace, you're locking doors, preventing Satan from getting through. And with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and with prayer, you're unlocking doors that allow the work, the truth, and the power of God to get in there. These are the keys of the kingdom, folks. And I think we're going to stop it for there. I know we didn't get very far into the gospel account today, but I really wanted to spend some special time on why Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. I think that's a passage of scripture that is overlooked. It's not investigated properly. Most people ignore it, and the few who don't ignore it abuse it. So that's why I wanted to spend some special time on this, and for personal reasons as well. So we'll adjourn for today. Next time we'll continue right where we left off. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.